This is our passage for this morning. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to go ahead and open to Mark chapter 4. And we're going to pick it up in verse 35. You know, this is one of my favorite parts of the narrative of the life of Jesus. One of my favorite miracles, one of my favorite just sort of experiences of his life as we've sort of read about it. And I've been looking forward to being here to teach this with you. This is a passage that's about fear. It's about faith. It's about trust. So I've been thinking a lot about these things as I've been prepping this week. And uh, thinking about the idea of trust, believe it or not, makes me think about a restaurant that I used to go to. And you're thinking, what, what's the connection between a trust and a restaurant? Well, before we moved to Franklin, we lived just for a couple of years in East Tennessee in the city of Johnson City. And some of y'all in this room have been to Johnson City. It's a fairly small town uh, in East Tennessee. It's not really known for its restaurants, but it has one restaurant that I miss. It's called Scratch Brick Oven, and it's a pizza place. It's a hole-in-the-wall pizza place. In fact, I've got a picture of it. We'll put it on the screen back behind me. This is Scratch. Now, you know, you can kind of see it's in a neighborhood. It's an old house which has been converted, and that's, like, really cool these days. Uh, Scratch is one of these eclectic, sort of crazy places. You walk in, you just feel like you walked into 1969. It kind of has this groovy um, kind of vibe to it. You know, the people that work are like, they're just in the groove. Like the guy that that was there making pizzas the day that I first went looked like he hadn't showered in a few days. You know, I was kind of like, I'm not so sure about this place. Now, to give you an idea about Scratch, I want to point your attention to a couple things. One is look at the sign. Now, this is a pizza place. The sign says, now serving sandwiches. And then the other thing is if you go to their website, this is what you're going to read. This is their self-description, how they describe their restaurant. Check this out. Scratch is a postmodern mom-pop and standard-issue store kid business. I have no idea what that means. (laughs) None. And then here's what they say. It features components of bakery, smokehouse, charcuterie forged into a wood-fired pizzeria. So you go in, you start looking at the ingredients of their pizzas. And of course, they have what you'd expect, right? They've got pepperoni and mushrooms and green peppers. They've got all those things. But then they also have some more unusual ingredients. So this is from their ingredients list. Uh, So sauces, let's start there. You don't have to just get the red tomato sauce. You could get chimichurri pesto or green curry sauce. And then to put on that, here's some of the more unusual ingredients that they offer. Capicola, cranberry turkey sausage, artichoke hearts, Fresh banana peppers, Granny Smith apples. You ever tried that on pizza? Mandarin oranges, hot cherry peppers, many, many, many others. Now, I walked in the first time. I was looking at the ingredient list, and I noticed, this is what I love about this restaurant. They give you three choices, all right? The first choice is build your own pizza. Now, this is what most of us do. So looking through the list, all right, good. I'm I'm a sausage and and mushroom kind of guy or whatever with extra cheese, whatever. So that's fine. So that's what I did the first time. And uh, I noticed, though, when I ordered that the, the other option that they had, one of the other two options, was what they call the trust pizza. <laughs> now, that's exactly what you think it is. <laughs> I said, there's no way that I'm going to order the trust pizza. It's like, I don't even know what some of these ingredients are, and others of them I know I don't like. So I got the build your own pizza, and honestly, it was, it was all right. I mean, it was good. It wasn't bad. It was good. And the guy there was like, man, next time you come, you, you need to try the trust pizza. I'm like, ah, thanks. Smiled. <laughs> Came back a couple weeks later. This time I was with a guy that I worked with at the church that had been here. And he was like, no, dude, man, that trust pizza is legit. And I said, I'm not quite there. And he goes, well, they do have a third option. It's called limited trust. 
I said, well, what's limited trust? And he goes, well, you tell them the things you don't want. They scratch those off the list and then they, you trust them to build the pizza. I was like, that's perfect for me, right? So I took out all the vegetables, <laughs> pretty much. I, I will admit, how sad, right? And, and all the things that I'd never heard of, I just scratched those off and they made a pizza. And honestly, it was better than the pizza I had the first time. I was like, this guy knows what they're doing. It's the same you know, non-showering dude that was making this pizza. And so he said before I left, now this was the pizza guy this time, and he was like, man, you come back next time, just ask for the trust pizza. I'll make you a pizza you'll never forget. And I was like, I don't know. So I came back, actually it probably took me like two or three more times before I finally had the courage to say, all right, man, I'm gonna open up to you. You do it, full trust. I'm moving from limited trust to full trust. So 15 minutes later, I got back this pizza pie. It didn't even look like a pizza. I mean, it had all these colors on it. I'm not used to colors on my pizza, right? I took a bite and I was like, oh, wow, it was delicious. It was worth going back for. In fact, the trust pizza is why Scratch Pizza ended up on the diners, dives, and drive-in show, which I had no clue about, right? But now, I, I, every time people came into town after that, where did we go? Scratch Pizza, what will we order? Trust Pizza. It was amazing. Just trust us. Now, here's the relationship between that story and this story that Heidi read earlier. Most of us walk around our lives in relationship to God, somewhere hanging between build your own and limited trust. Very few of us step on over to full trust. Very few of us are willing to let go everything and say, all right, God, you know, I'm not gonna hold back my, my family anymore. I'm not gonna hold back my dream. I'm not gonna hold back this area of my life that I, that, I, that I go to and I'm feeling down about myself, whatever it is. Full trust, God, we all aspire to that. We read stories about it in scripture. We have a really hard time doing it. Now, the disciples in the text that Heidi read to you, the text that we're gonna unpack this morning, they were not at full trust. That's the point in the passage. Now, these are the disciples. These are like those, our spiritual ancestors, right? We name our kids after these folks. And yet, at least at this point in their spiritual development, they're, they're, they're way back over here. They're, they build your own. I, I, don't, I don't need a storm. You know, I, I liked it when you were healing people. I don't like it when you lead us straight into a storm. Don't you care about us? See, this is what they're asking. So here's our challenge this morning is to look at this text and ask the question, what would it look like for me to develop along the same trajectory as these disciples to slowly go, go from build my own relationship to God, which is where we all start, to limited trust, to full trust, full trust. Here's what lays on the other side of full trust, the greatest experience in your relationship with God. The most exciting adventure, the, 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 the deepest sense of unity with the Father, life that is real life, true life, abundant life, comes in full trust, but it's really hard to get there. Last thing I'll say by way of introduction, why is it so hard to get there? Because we all fear. We're all afraid. Fear can dominate our lives. Every single one of us fears. Every single one of us is afraid. Now, some of you, like you're living in fear right now and you're like, yes. Some of you are like, eh, I'm pretty brave. <laughs> but it only takes one little storm before all that courage washes away and you're just like, I'm afraid. This is where the disciples were. Now, what kinds of things do we fear? Most of us don't fear storms in a ship or a boat. Most of us not been there. Here's some of the things we fear. Here's some of our storms. Fear of harm, fear of being alone, Fear of failure, fear of missing out, fear of losing our money, our health, our jobs, our relationships, our reputation, fear of being rejected, 
Fear of making the wrong decision, fear of not being enough, or fear of not having enough. And ultimately, all these sort of point to the big daddy fear, right? The ultimate fear of separation and loss, the fear of death. We fear, I think most of us live with fear either just below the surface or present in us right now. And we've come to this well-known scene of Jesus and we find this passage is actually not about Jesus. This passage is about the disciples and their fear. The text is gonna ask us some questions this morning. In fact, by way of outline, this is where I wanna go with the rest of the message. I wanna set some context and background for you to really kind of unlock what's happening here. And then I wanna ask three questions as the text asks, the same questions that are in the text. One is this question that the disciples asked Jesus, do you care? That's a question not just for them to ask, it's a question for us to ask too. The second is a question that Jesus asked the disciples, why are you afraid? That question is also for us this morning. And then the third question, the disciples ask each other, who is this guy? Who is this man, Jesus? That's the final question I want us to dig into and we'll apply the passage largely through that question. So here's the immediate context. Jesus has been teaching all day long. He's been teaching these parables. Lloyd last week sort of you know, talked about the message of these parables, the mustard seed, the other parables. Here's what Lloyd said last week. Jesus' message of the parables is largely this. He said, the message of the kingdom that I've been preaching won't keep you from disappointment and loss and hurt, at least on this side of heaven, but it will give you hope in the midst of it. And Lloyd talked about, you know, we kind of live in between the redemption of the cross on, represented in that painting and the new earth that's coming in the future. We live in between in that and this idea that we're not gonna be kept from hurt and disappointment and loss, but we can have hope in it. Now, what I think is amazing about the transition that Mark uh, illustrates in this narrative, and it's really Jesus that's doing this, um, is he's taking the disciples from the classroom to the lab. Y'all remember in high school, you know, you'd show up to science class or college, and some days you'd be in the classroom, you're learning things in your head, the other things you're actually mixing chemicals and blowing things up. That's what's going to happen in this ship, right? This boat. They're moving from the classroom to the lab, and I think Jesus is designing this specifically for them. Uh, that's, that's my opinion on what's happening here. So let's pick it back up, the story that Heidi read already. I'll just read a verse or two at a time and then we'll talk about it. Verse 35, Mark chapter four. On that day, same day he's been teaching, when evening came, he said to them, let us go over to the other side. And he's talking about the other side of the Sea of Galilee. Leaving the crowd, they took him along with them in the boat just as he was and other boats were with him. What does it mean just as he was? It means he was already in the boat teaching He's already there. They said, let's just go. He didn't come back to shore. Jesus just left. Interesting detail that there's other boats. You'll see why that's relevant here in a couple of minutes. But I want to talk about two things here. I want to talk about the sea and I want to talk about the boat. So here's a little background on the sea. This, we, you know, we call this the Sea of Galilee. It's actually a lake. It's a freshwater lake in Israel. I, I don't know if you're aware of that or not. Uh, let me show you a picture of it. I took this picture when I was in Israel with Michael last spring because as Michael says, it is God's will for you to go to Israel, right? So I said, I guess I need to go to Israel. So I went to Israel and it was phenomenal. It was fantastic. So I took this picture overlooking the Sea of Galilee. Now I wanted to show you this one because this shows you the width of the lake or, you know, or, or the, the sea as they call it. 
This is about eight miles across. You are looking, you're standing on the west side of the lake and you're looking toward the east side of the lake. Now it's much bigger north to south, but the direction that Jesus would have been going is he would have been going the direction of this picture. So starting kind of over here from the west part and traveling toward the east part. Now you might be thinking, that's just not that big a deal, right? Like, you know, in my ski boat, we could get across that in 20, 30 minutes time. I don't know how long it would take. Let's talk about the kind of boat that they were in. We got a picture of that too. This is a representation or a rebuilt image, a model of that boat. Now, you can't see the scale super well, but this only had a crew of four or five people. It is a small boat. You could row it and it had one sail in the, in, in the middle, a relatively small boat. In fact, uh, it's about seven and a half feet wide, which is the width of this stage extension. And it's about 25 feet long. It would go about to where that screen is right here. So you can kind of just picture this little boat right here. It's not that much bigger than, than a, um, an oversized canoe or a little paddle boat. Now, how do we know this is the kind of boat that they were in? Well, this is where it gets really cool. 1986, the, the, the water level of the lake was way low and, and, and some guy was out in the mud, in the muck where the water used to be and he, he found some wood and he started digging around, found some more wood and pretty soon they dug out of the mud a boat. Let's show a picture of what they pulled out. This is the, the, the wooden structure, the hull of this boat. They dated this with every possible dating method they can and you know what date they got to? First century AD, the exact time of Jesus. Now, I'm not saying this is the boat. That's very unlikely. It's possible, but very unlikely. But this would have been the fish, kind of fishing boat Jesus would have been in. This is very typical. In fact, we have, uh, we've un also uncovered some drawings that, of boats that look just like this. So you can see now with the scale of that man standing behind there, the size of this boat is not real big. You need to remember that. You need to know. In fact, the fact that there's other boats, probably the 12 disciples were split over a few boats and Jesus would have had just a few of them with them. There would have been other folks as well too that were following Jesus that were not part of the 12 that likely would have been with them. Now, one last piece of context I gotta give you before we can really dive deep into the meat of this passage, which is the storm. And that is this. Ancient people had a deep-rooted fear of the sea. Now, this makes sense if you think about it because the sea is just sort of like this mysterious, powerful force. And in fact, in all ancient literature, biblical literature and non-biblical literature, you, you see this theme coming out that, that the, the, the place where the monsters come from or the evil or the unknown or the chaos symbolically was always the sea. So even in our scripture, the sea represents evil, now, what the Hebrew person knew with their biblical worldview is God was controller of the sea. So remember when he parted the sea for the Hebrew people? Remember when even in Genesis chapter one, the, the way that, the, that the, the creation is described as the spirit of God hovered over the waters and then he began to bring order to what was chaotic? Think about Moses being delivered through the Nile River in a basket. Think about you know, Noah and the ark being delivered through on the sea. Over and over again, this metaphor is God delivers from the waters. In fact, I'll read to you from Isaiah 43, beautiful passage about what God wanted the Hebrew people to think about the sea. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. 
Now, this is what should have been in the mindset of these disciples, these Hebrews, Hebrew disciples, but they also would have had a fear of the sea because they were ancient people. And some of us in this room even have a similar feel. Uh, fishermen, even today, are some of the most superstitious people in the world. Isn't that very interesting? So the sea is the epitome of evil and chaos, but God can control it and only God control it. That's what you need to know before we move on. All right, now let's jump back into the text in verse 37. There arose a fierce gale of wind and the waves were breaking over the boat so much that the boat was already filling up. Jesus himself was in the stern, so, you know, back, asleep on the cushion. And they woke him and said to him, teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? Amazing that Jesus was sleeping, isn't it? In fact, a uh, little piece of trivia, the only time in the Gospels where it's recorded that Jesus was literally sleeping was during a storm. Now, this wasn't the only time he slept, but it's the only time that we have a specific record. Jesus was asleep. It's during a storm. I think what this tells us is not just that Jesus was exhausted. That's where some commentators go with it. I think there's something more than that. I think this reminds us that he's asleep because he knows who's in control. He knows in, who's in charge. He has no fear. Not only that, was this was no accident. Jesus was the one that said, let us go to the other side. Jesus knew everything. Jesus knew this storm was gonna come. This was happening exactly according to plan. He's thinking, okay, here we go. We're transitioning from the classroom now to the lab. Let's see what they do with this. And he's asleep on the cushion. Now, the first question of the text comes up, and this is one that I wanna drill down into for a few minutes for us. The, the disciples ask this very honestly understandable question, right? Do you not care that we're perishing? These were experienced fishermen and the fact that they believed they were dying says something about their circumstances. This was bad, y'all. This was no joke. And their master, their rabbi, they'd seen him do all these miracles. He's asleep? Really? Do you not care? It's the same question that you would have asked because it's the same question that you do ask. And I ask. It's the first thing I ask God when something happens in my life that I don't like. Do you not care? Don't you care? I think it's the fundamental question of every human heart toward their creator. Do you care about me? Do you care that I'm down here dying? My body is literally deteriorating. And where are you? Where are you? Do you care? I'll even take it a step further and say, if you've never asked that question, I think you need to. Now, here's what I mean by that. If you never engage with God authentically enough to say, do you really care about me? Do you see me? Do you notice me? Does it matter to you? Then either your relationship with God has never actually really taken root or you're just so calloused over in your relationship with God that you don't almost have a relationship with God. This is a real question. This is a question we need to be asking. This is the core question of every human heart and I'm glad the disciples asked it. They were asking the right person, weren't they? They didn't even know he was God at this point in time, but they instinctively knew he was at least connected to God. And so they say, do you not care? Do you not care? Remember the sea was their greatest fear. I think this text speaks to our greatest fear. 
And the question that we ask God in our fear, we should be asking God, do you care? Do you care? Now Jesus is going to answer the question. Let's see how he responds. Verse 39. And he got up and rebuked the wind and said to the sea, Hush, be still. And the wind died down and it became perfectly calm. This incident's recorded in three of the four Gospels. It's in Matthew, it's in Mark, it's in Luke. Mark's the only one that records the verbatim quotation, the actual words Jesus said. You'll notice the quotes in your text. He says, hush, be still. Jesus' words are just two verbs, two imperative verbs. That means they're commands. And the first one means, you know, translated here, hush means silence or, or, or peace. I kind of like the translation hush in the NASB. Here's why. Jesus is addressing the wind and the, and the waves like you would address your child. Hush, hush. He's got that much power over them, right? They, they listen to him, they obey him. And then the second verb is a more interesting one. Be still. Literally, it's the idea of be muzzled. So if you take a wild animal, you know, and you muzzle that wild animal, and interestingly as well, it's in a verb tense that indicates that this was designed not just to, to be still in the moment, but be still and stay still. So be quiet, stay quiet. Be still, stay still. He's talking to them like you would talk to a child in the backseat of the car that's driving you nuts. <laughs> You know, this is the idea of Jesus. This is the kind of power. This is the kind of authority that he has over the waves. Now, you notice the detail when it says that it became perfectly calm, perfectly still. Here's why this is important. If it was just the, the, the rain and the wind that stopped, maybe the disciples could think that was a little coincidental. Just maybe. I mean, storms sometimes stop suddenly. But what would happen if it, the storm just stopped? The waves would just keep doing this and it wouldn't have helped them. The, the ship would have still have sunk from those waves. But all of a sudden, it's like glass instantaneously. It's like, you know, water skiing on this lake all of a sudden. It goes from storm to glass. This is a miracle. It's miraculous. There's no question about it. And of course, we'll see in a minute the, the disciples' response to this. Uh, let's talk first, though, about Jesus' question to them. Because this is also a deep, powerful, penetrating question. Verse 40. And he said to them, why are you afraid? Do you still have no faith? This is the second question for us. Why are you afraid? The first question is one you ask God, do you care? And you should ask that question. The second one is God asks you, why are you afraid? Now, fascinating study, by the way, through Mark is look at the questions that Jesus asks people. As we go through this study over the next months, just Every time we come to a question that Jesus asks, circle that and come back to it and think about it. It makes a great study. What you'll find is fascinating. The questions Jesus asked were never for him. They were always for the person he's asking them to. Makes sense, right? Jesus knows everything. He can read people's minds. He doesn't have to ask any questions. So any question he does ask is, is really for them. Great questions are powerful, y'all. And this is a very powerful question. Why are you afraid? This is not just their question. It's our question this morning for you. Why are you afraid? Now, the disciples would have had an immediate answer, but if they would have thought about it long enough, they would have had a deeper answer. Let me explain. Their immediate answer is, are you kidding? Why are we afraid? Did you not see the storm? Did you not see the water in the boat? And here you were asleep in the back. That's a dumb question. Think about it longer. They're gonna get to something deeper. 
How about you this morning? Why are you afraid? Are you kidding? Have you seen the poll numbers? <laughs> Have you seen the election? It's right upon us. All this stuff's going on. We've got all these threats around the world. Or maybe for you personally, it's just like, oh man, are you kidding? I lost my job, my bank account, my family, my rebellious kid, my health, my sick father, my whatever it is. What do you mean, why am I afraid, God? But I want us to go deeper. I want us to go deeper. Where do our fears ultimately come from? Fear goes back to the very beginning. You know the place in the Bible where the word fear is first used? Genesis chapter 3. What do you know about Genesis chapter 3? This is the, what we call the fall, right? This is where sin entered the world. And here's the first place where you see fear in the Bible. Genesis 3 verse 10. Adam says this to God. I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. When sin entered the human experience, fear was right with it. Sin and fear are like this, man. They're glued together. So listen, had Adam been naked all along? Yes. It suddenly occurred to him that he needed to feel insecure about that. It suddenly occurred to him that he was vulnerable. It suddenly occurred to him that he was afraid. Now, God's interaction with Adam is so brilliant. We'll come back to that in a minute, what God says to him. But I want you to see right now is sin and fear entered the world at virtually the same time. They're still connected like this. Now, why does sin accompany fear? What's the connection? Uh, for this, I, I was digging through the Bible and thinking about a lot of different theological ideas and, and Meredith Kinder and I started talking. Some of you know Meredith. He's our pastor of counseling. He's also an elder here at Fellowship. He sits with men and women every single day that are, that are, that are deeply being uh, impacted by fears of various kinds. And I said, Meredith, I, talk to you. What, what do you think about this? Theologically speaking, what's going on with our fear? What, why is fear and sin connected? Here's what Meredith said. I thought this was so wise. Meredith said, because of sin, we feel insecure. And so we try to regain a sense of security by controlling our environment. So we try to control. Now, I think he's right. Because of sin, we feel insecure. Picture Adam sinned I feel insecure in my nakedness. Now, what do they do? Adam and Eve, the first thing they do is try to control their environment, right? They grab fig leaves and they put them over themselves to cover. In other words, to reduce their fear. So here's what Meredith said. He said, the higher control we have of our environment, the less we fear. But the less control we have of our environment, the more we fear. High control, low fear. Low control, high fear. Makes sense, doesn't it? Uh, I had a experience with this not long ago with my youngest daughter, Karis. She was learning to ride a bike with no training wheels. And this is our youngest, so this is the last chance I had to, to do this wonderful thing as a parent. And I was really looking forward to it. I wanted to enjoy this experience. And about 10 minutes into it, I realized, oh, man, let's get this over with. I'm exhausted from this, right? So here's what would happen. I would have my left hand on her handlebar, my right hand on the back of her seat, right? So I'm literally virtually cradling her. And I'm, I'm jogging, getting my exercise, and she's pedaling. She's having a brilliant time, you know, looking around, butterfly, you know, and I'm winded. So what do I do? I'm like, All right, it's time. She's got it. I'm gonna start letting go. So I just sort of let go with this hand. Daddy, don't let go. I'm afraid. Put the hand back. Oh, butterfly. I'm good. You know, we, we did this over and over. Now, finally, I realized I can't do this. And she's, she's competent enough to ride the bike. So what I did was I said, listen, honey, I'm still holding in the back. 
I'm still holding in the back. Okay, okay, you know, I'm still, she looked around, I'm still holding, she's, she's fine. But after a while, what did I do? And y'all, your parents have all done this. You let go, I didn't tell her. She's still enjoying it, enjoying life until she realizes I'm not there. Then she wrecks. <laughs> it's like, oh, so close. Now, this is the experience. As long as she felt like she was secure, she had control over the situation, or I had control over the situation, she was fine. The moment she was on her own, the moment she had low control, she was afraid. This is how this works. Now, back to conversation with Meredith. Meredith says, look, here's what's going on. We spend most of our energy and efforts in this world trying to control our environment so we won't fear as much. Here are some examples. We stockpile money and assets we move into safe towns and neighborhoods and schools. By the way, I'm not saying these are sinful things, but these are ways that we try to control our fear. We buy safe vehicles. We eat organic foods and grass-fed animals. Some of you. Good for you. How about this next one? Very relevant. We vote for officials we believe will make us the most safe or provide security or give us the most benefits that we want. We separate from people who hold opposing views. We lie sometimes to avoid consequences or make ourselves feel more secure. We run and hide to avoid being harmed. Sometimes we might even make threats or blackmails to garner power and keep people in line so that we can be in control, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. This is our human experience. Nearly every human endeavor is somehow related, manipulating your environment, your circumstances, so that you feel like you're more in control and therefore you have less fear. You think about it in any sphere of life, I think you'll make that connection. Here's the truth. Control is an illusion for everyone but one. You're a finite human being you can't control. Could it be that this is what Jesus wanted the disciples to experience? These experienced fishermen, but out on this sea in this storm that he knew was coming, they're out of control. Because they're out of control, they fear. You would have too. Some of you are right now. We fear. Last thing on this, here's the irony about sin. I think what we do when we sin is it's an effort to control something in order to make us feel secure and less fearful. Let me explain. You've got that one sort of thing that you need, that you want to experience, whatever it is, that makes you feel good for a period of time so that you don't have to feel the pain that your normal life is. Or you're going to lie, even maybe a so-called white lie, just so you don't look bad, just so you don't look incompetent in front of other people, so you're not afraid in your own security. Or you're going to take something or manipulate something, or you're going to gossip to feel better about yourselves. You're going to go down all these different sinful paths, and what's really going on is you're saying, I feel insecure, but I'm going to grab onto something that I think will give me a sense of insecurity. The problem is it always betrays you. And so the irony, the problem with sin is when you sin, just like Adam, you're stepping away. If this is where God is, secure connection to God, you're stepping away from that. And there's nothing but fear and vulnerability and nakedness apart from secure connection to your father. This is why Jesus wasn't afraid. 
the only one in the story that's not afraid, is the one that's securely at rest in his relationship with his father. Listen, my daughter had no fear when I was cradling her on that bike. Jesus has no fear. He knows who's in control. His father's in control. He's in perfect union, perfect communion with the father. No reason to fear, right? He's, he's, he's attached healthily, beautifully, perfectly. Here's the answer to the question, why are you afraid? It's not because the storm is big. It's not because of the election. It's not because of your kids that's rebellious. It's not because of your health. You're afraid. Here's the reason. You're afraid because we collectively, as a, as a human species, we have sinned and we are separated from our Father and we lack the secure connection that comes with the way that we were designed to be built for. And we're naked we're vulnerable, we're scared. Our fear goes back to a lack of trust. Lack of trust is always related to stepping away from secure attachment to the Father. Why are you afraid? That's why you're afraid. Now, when we get to verse 41, we're gonna see the story turn a little bit. Their fear is gonna change. It's very interesting what happens in 41. They became very much afraid and said to one another, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? What a great question. Isn't it amazing that they were afraid of the storm, but they're terrified now of Jesus? Now, why are they terrified of him? It goes back to their theology. They know only one can control the sea. We just saw this man control the sea. What does that mean? Who is he? It, I think the reason they ask the question instead of make the statement is they can't wrap their mind around that this is God incarnate. It can't. Like, how hard of a concept would that be to understand if you were them? It, impossible. He can't be God. I mean, he's connected to God. He's powerful, but could he really be God? I don't think so. Who then is this man? They're terrified of him. Not too different from the way that I think Isaiah was terrified in Isaiah chapter 41 when he sees God in all of his glory. He says, woe is me. I'm a man of unclean lips and I'm in the presence of the Holy One. John, who was close to Jesus as a disciple and then later wrote the book of Revelation from this vision that he saw, here's what he wrote. When I saw him, the resurrected Christ in all of his glory, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. Every time you see in scripture this full manifestation of the glory and power of God, we're afraid. Why are we afraid? We realize we're in the presence of someone that is far beyond anything that we have control over. You have no control over God. And if you're honest, that's a little scary. What's he gonna do to me? Is he, is he gonna give me cancer? Is he, gonna, is he gonna separate me from something? Is he gonna deny me of some dream? Right? I, I'm, a, I'm afraid not just of circumstance. I'm afraid of God. That's why I won't trust him. It's like me looking at that guy making the pizza. I'm like, this guy can't even shower. I don't trust him to make my pizza. So, so this is the bridge. This is the chasm that we must cross. Now, I'm not talking about healthy fear of the Lord and reverence for God. That's biblical, right? But, but you can hold that healthy fear of the Lord, but be able to trust him fully. And that's what I want to get to as we start to kind of wrap this up a little bit. And I think we're going to apply this through this third question. The disciples are now asking each other, who then is this? I think that's the question we have to ask if we want to learn to trust God more. Let me explain. 
Uh, I was reading a commentary on this passage by James Edwards. He's a New Testament scholar. I like the way he put it. Mark concludes the stilling of the storm with a question that is a doorway to faith. Who is this man? Now, why is this a doorway to faith? And it's not just in like, if you've never come to Christ and put your trust in him, then this is a doorway to faith. You know, you've heard that sermon before. It's a great sermon, but I'm not preaching that sermon. I'm talking to those of you that have put your trust in Christ already, just like these disciples had put their trust in Christ to follow him around as his disciples. And yet they're still asking the question, who is this man? I think we're all still asking that question, really. Who is this man? In other words, if Jesus is God, what I believe to be true about Jesus is what I believe to be true about God. So what do you believe to be true? Not just your theology in your head, but what you really believe deep down that impacts how you live. Your functional theology, if you will. I think there's three things you've gotta believe deep down about God in order to trust him. Number one, you gotta know he's powerful. Number two, you gotta know he's good. And number three, you gotta know he's present. Because if God's only powerful but not good, then you do need to fear him in the wrong kind of way. If he's only good and not also powerful, then he may want to help you, but he's not gonna be able to help you. He's, he's impotent, he's weak. If he's powerful and good but not present, then he's just distant. He's sleeping in the boat, so to speak. Now, I told you earlier, Jesus answered the question, do you not care, by calming the storm, but he did not answer the question fully because they didn't get it yet. There were other storms still to come. There was other pain still to come. He would eventually answer the question emphatically, not just for them, but for all of us who would ever cry out to God, God, do you care about me? Here's the answer to the question. You, you remember uh, two scenes from later in Jesus' life. First was in the garden. This is Jesus' storm. This is the moment in time where Jesus is most vulnerable. He's sweating blood, y'all. He doesn't want to do what the Father's asking him to do. He says, God, is there any other way? Could you take the cup of wrath away from me? Where are the disciples? They're sleeping. They're there, but they're asleep. Ring a bell? <laughs> so he goes over and he wakes the disciples just like they had woken him on the boat. But instead of saying, don't you care about me, like they did, here's what he says. The flesh Oh, sorry, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. In other words, I think what Jesus was saying is, I understand you're weak. And because you're weak, it's okay. I will stand in the gap alone for you. I will go to a place that you can't go to. And then the next day on the cross, as he's hanging there, the message for the disciples and for everyone, all of us who would believe the message of the cross is this, you thought I didn't care because I was asleep when you were perishing. Now, that you, now you see that I've come to perish so that you can rest, so that you can be at peace. That's the trade that Jesus was willing to make. In other words, for you, this cry out of God, don't you care? Don't you care? Don't you know that I'm dying? That my body is slowly deteriorating? That my relationships, that my money, whatever it is, is slowly deteriorating? God, don't you care? Jesus answers the question, y'all, on the cross, emphatically and finally. And he says, I am dying so that you can rest, so that you can have peace. Now, the problem you're thinking is, but he didn't calm the storm, like, not for me, right? Listen, for us, 
the final calming of the storm, the smooth like glass, happens there. It happens in the new earth. And so, yeah, we still live in a storm, but Jesus is there. And Jesus embodies all three things you need to believe about your God in order to trust him. Number one, he's powerful. So powerful that he could calm that storm in an instant. Number two, he's loving. So loving that he'd hang on a cross so that you don't have to. And three, he's present. So present that his name is Emmanuel. God with us. It's the whole reason he came to express God. In fact, last verse I'm gonna read to you here in this message, John 1, 18. No one's ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God has made him known. So if you wanna move from limited trust to full trust, you gotta meditate on Jesus. You gotta focus on him. You gotta think about him. You gotta go deeper with him. You gotta understand, I believe he's man. I believe he's God. I believe he's powerful. I believe he's present. I believe he's love, but I know I'm not living that way. And then ask him to transform you. It took a long time for the disciples to be transformed to believe these things, but it was the cross and the resurrection that did it. How about you? How about me? This is the question we're left with in this text. I love the way Mark just kind of ends the narrative with this question. Who is this? That's our question in the midst of our fear. The more you understand Jesus, the more you get to know him, the more you don't just believe in your theology, but you believe in your whole being, the more you'll begin to trust that he knows what he's doing. Not easy, but life-giving. So let me bow my head and your heads as we pray. Father, we do pray that you would give us faith. We ask because we lack and you've promised to give it. And so we ask, we receive. We can only receive if our hands are open. So I pray, Father, you'd help us to open our hands, to let go of some things that we're really afraid of or feel unsettled about or anxious about, and that you would speak peace to us in the midst of what is still a storm that is not yet calmed, that we would trust you even in the middle of it. In the name of your son, Jesus, we pray. Amen.